Hello and welcome to episode 244 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. So sadly, it didn't come home and Wimbledon is over. But on the positive side, at least Badil and Skinner must have some great new material for the re-release ahead of the World Cup next year. Today's story from London is a baffling one, a really, really puzzling one, full of twists and turns. But before we begin, as always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially the new members of this exclusive club. That is Lynn, Alina Adrelina, and Suzanne Drain. Thank you so much for your support, which is much appreciated. This episode is brought to you by Masterclass. Have you tried Masterclass yet? What do you mean no? It's great. It's accessible on your phone, web or smart TV and offers classes on a wide variety of topics, all taught by world-class masters at the top of their fields. Each class is broken out into individual video lessons, usually just around 10 minutes long. You can learn how to write anything from a book or a screenplay to just a letter. I think with my current dire book sales, then writing a book class is for me. But whatever you choose, you can learn from top instructors. For example, why not learn cooking with Gordon Ramsay, jazz with Herbie Hancock, or songwriting with Alicia Keys? My next one is the art of performance with Usher. It sounds awesome, doesn't it? And it's so flexible that you can take the course at a time that suits you with your busy schedule. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass, and as a UK true crime listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash true crime. That's masterclass.com slash true crime for 15% off Masterclass. This episode is sponsored by Relief Band. As a keen sailor, I hate that I suffer from seasickness. And I also struggle with car sickness and air sickness too. If you're a sufferer, you will know just how unpleasant it is. But like me, if you do suffer, you need to check out Relief Band. I've been using it these last few weeks, and it really works. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. It's 100% drug-free, it doesn't make you drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects as long as needed. I was astonished at how it works. Relief band simply stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach, telling you that you're sick. So if you're getting ready to take that road trip, to get on that boat, or you're just anxious about travelling to head back to the office, I've got some good news for you. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for UK true crime listeners. If you go to reliefband.co.uk and use the promo code TRUECRIME, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no-questions-asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to reliefband.co.uk and use the promo code TRUECRIME for 20% off plus free shipping. Okay, let's quickly play our guest the month and year game to set some context for today's story. Top of the UK music charts in the UK was Queen with Bohemian Rhapsody, and these were the days of our lives. In the US, it was All for Love from Colour Me Bad, and in Australia, it was Salt and Pepper 
of Let's Talk About Sex. In the news this month, Australian cricket legend Shane Warne made his test debut v India in the third test at Sydney Cricket Ground. Boxer Mike Tyson went on trial for rape. He was later found guilty. And in the UK, the Adult Channel launched. It was a satellite-delivered subscription service that featured cable versions of adult movies and broadcast four hours a day from midnight to 4am. Did you get the month and year? It was January 1992. Wallington is a town in the London borough of Sutton in South London, just 10 miles southwest of Charing Cross. The town has boasted several names of notes who have been born here throughout its history. Perhaps in the context of a true crime podcast, Nick Ross, the former presenter of Crime Watch UK, perhaps being the most famous. There are three grammar schools in the town and Wallington is generally considered a popular place to live, not least to its close proximity to the capital for commuting. Nimal Samarasina, known as Sam to his friends, came to live in the UK from Sri Lanka in the 1970s. Nimal was an engineering student and hoped that his efforts, he was a super hard worker, would gain him decent employment further down the line. Around this time, Nimmel met Florence and their couple became an item. At the completion of his studies, however, the pair became caught up on the wrong side of the law when Nimmel overstayed his visa and found himself in prison for six months. Upon his release, things became markedly better for Nimmel, and he and Florence married in 1978 and had their only child, daughter Michelle. Although his daughter in particular was Nimmel's world, he spent considerable time working abroad to provide for his family. He'd worked back in his native Sri Lanka for Air Lanka, and also in Nigeria as an aircraft engineer, putting to perfect use his qualifications gained through his relentless study. However, it wasn't all smooth running, it never is, is it? As in 1984, Nimmel was fired from his position, following a dispute over staff payments. Nimmel returned to the UK and was able to secure a new job with Bristow's Helicopters as an avionics engineer. His duties comprised mainly of maintaining and repairing the electronic components of the helicopters, and he would often work late into the evenings and across weekends. He was certainly a dedicated employee who enjoyed his work. Indeed, he appeared keen to immerse his daughter into the industry too, often taking her to work with him on weekends, where he could educate her in his craft, hoping no doubt that she too would follow his line of work in due course. His wife Florence, she worked hard too and had been making something of a name for herself within Brent County Council as an assistant benefits officer. As she developed and flourished in the role, she eventually put herself forward for an elevated position, applying for the role of Chief Benefits Officer at Croydon, and happily for her, she was successful. Life then seemed a prosperous and happy one for Nimmel and his family. But then, as we all know from experience, and have heard so many times before in this podcast, It's often when everything appears to be going so, so well that the fragility of the lives we lead becomes apparent. For Nimmel's family, everything changed early on in the new year of 1992. On the morning of Thursday the 30th of January, just a normal Thursday, the town of Wallington would be rocked by a seemingly senseless and unprovoked murder, not under the cover of darkness, but whilst people were preparing themselves for the day ahead. Back at his house, Nimmel, his wife Florence and daughter Michelle were each performing the normal morning rituals 
as they ready themselves for school and work. It was winter and the weather had been particularly cold and icy, and Nimmel, dutifully, had left the house on Dement's Road to warm up the car ready for Rochelle for when she finished in the house. As Nimmel opened the gates to the garage and was about to get into his car, he was struck from behind. A single knife blow penetrating his back and entering his heart. It killed him almost instantly. It appeared that Nimmel had been aware of some kind of impending danger, however, as his cries for help were heard by several neighbours, who were also preparing themselves for the day ahead. The police and emergency services arrived hastily at the scene, but their efforts were sadly in vain, and Nimmel was pronounced dead. Michelle, Nimmel's daughter, had wandered out from the house with the usual intention of joining her dad in the car, but she had no idea that when she walked towards the car, she would not be greeted by her loving, doting dad, but rather she would be confronted by a large crowd of people, all huddled around a person lying prone on the ground. The realisation that that person was her dad must have been horrifying for her. Nimmo had not been robbed. There appeared at the outset to be little idea of a motive for the killing. It seemed to have all the hallmarks of a contract killing, but again, why would anyone want Nimmel dead? Detective Inspector Tony Kirby was the man charged with trying to find the answers to these particular questions. Police were of course aware of Nimmel's own skirmish with the law through his jailing some years previously, but that was for overstaying his visa. That was a long time ago, but when they started to delve into the backgrounds of the family, they would uncover other issues which would help them progress their investigations. They quickly discovered that the relationship between Nimmel and Florence was far from a harmonious one. Police had been called to the house five times in the recent past, usually following domestic disputes. The first time this occurred, the police arrived to find the bickering pair arguing fiercely in the street. On another occasion, Florence reported that her husband had even attacked her with a knife, which Nimmel denied. Nimmel himself had contacted police previously too. The latest one was following a rather bizarre and strange incident late into the night on Wednesday the 22nd of January at around midnight. Nimmel had been in bed but was woken by the doorbell sounding. He checked through the bedroom window to see who was outside but could see nobody so he climbed back into bed. The doorbell rang again so this time Nimmel hurriedly rushed downstairs to see what exactly was going on. And there, stood in the doorway, was a man. The front door to the house was open behind him. Nimmo was shocked. He didn't recognise the man. And the man told him that he'd seen someone running away from the house, and having seen the front door open, he decided to check and see if Nimmo was okay. He claimed that he was a neighbour, although Nimmo definitely did not know him. And as such, the incident sent alarm bells ringing, and he called the police soon after the stranger had left the house. In response to the incident, police could find no sign of forced entry, so they were at a loss to explain the man's presence inside the property. Furthermore, they were unable to trace the man, strongly suggesting that he wasn't a local person as he had suggested. Despite the odd nature of these events, police could not immediately link it to the murder of Nimmel. However, in the morning following the incident, A local lady was taking her dog for a morning walk at about 7.15am. As she walked along the main road near Nimmo's house, 
she became aware of a white car moving towards her, which then stopped abruptly across a junction before turning into a nearby road. The woman then saw the car reverse out of the road and across the main road and up a nearby street. The car continued to reverse up the street for a while before suddenly halting. It was very strange. The driver and passenger were both being described as being Asian men and the incident certainly sparked alarm bells to the lady who thought it was very peculiar and reported it to the police. A few days following the bizarre nighttime caller's appearance at Nimmo's house, Nimmo had installed an alarm system and a fake security camera with the intention of deterring similar incidents. Did these actions perhaps suggest the knowledge or fear that someone bore a grudge against him? Was Nimmo expecting further incidents of this sort, maybe? As police continued their inquiries into Nimmo's murder, a picture was beginning to build in terms of possible suspects, and a suspicious white car cropped up several times. At 6.45am on the morning of Nimmo's murder, a man's attention was drawn to a white Ford Orion car which sat parked near to Nimmo's house. The car windows were not frosted, despite the thick frost which was enveloping the other vehicles in the area, and a plump Asian man around 40 to 45 years old sat in the driver's seat. When the car was parked, the driver had an unobstructed view of both the front door and the garage of Nimmo's home. Was he waiting with the most sinister of intentions for Nimmo to emerge from the address? At a similar time, a lady who was clearing her own car of ice also noticed a white Orion car. But this time it was a younger, white man of around 35 years old inside and wearing a flat cap. When he noticed that the woman had stopped him, he appeared to become slightly agitated and drove off until he was out of view. Was this the same car that had been spotted on the same morning, only with different drivers? Or had, as we know can certainly happen, the witnesses unwittingly relayed inaccurate information to the police? Witness reliability is of course notoriously difficult to depend upon with any great certainty. All of this clouded the investigation and lumbered the police with difficulty in obtaining the right facts. Perhaps the most telling sighting, however, was from a man who was walking towards the main street when his attention was directed towards the heavy sound of metal clashing against metal. As he looked in the direction of the clattering sound, he saw a man standing on the inside of Nimmo's gate that led towards his garage, simply staring towards the garage. And within moments of this sighting, Nimmo was attacked. At the same time, a white car again was seen screeching away in great haste. Detective Inspector Kirby desperately sought clarity on these sightings, and of course he was still looking for any indication of motive. When speaking to Nimmo's wife Florence, it appeared that he may have stumbled upon a positive motive. Through the tears and the grief, she made an admittance that her husband had been involved in the drugs trade. She described how he would often take a host of late-night secretive phone calls and had even had threats made on his life. Was this the breakthrough? The problem with this line of inquiry was that it seemed at complete odds with Nimmo as a person. He had, as we've heard, had issues with his visa, which led to him going to prison, but the notion that he was involved in drugs, or indeed that he was a violent man, as Florence had suggested, just could not be corroborated by anyone that knew him. Officers interviewed many local people, 
all of whom were bemused at the suggestion that Nimmo could be in some way tied to such underworld activities. As the investigation progressed, police discovered that Nimmo and Florence had instigated divorce proceedings, which were in place at the time of Nimmo's death. Added to this was the further complication that a custody battle for their daughter Michelle had been set. Clearly, there was little loss between Nimmo and Florence at this time. Indeed, just a day prior to Nimmo's murder, he'd explained to his daughter that there may be a chance that she would in the future have to decide who she wanted to live with. When she was spoken to by the police, she told them that she'd wanted to live with her dad. Three months after Nimmo's murder, with the case still unsolved, in the April of 1992, the police took the step of submitting the case to TV show Crime Watch UK, in the hope of solidifying what they already knew, and perhaps have new lines of inquiry open too. The reconstruction of events focused principally on the white Ford Orion and who its occupants may have been. Perhaps tellingly, however, there were several aspects not covered in the broadcast, such as any mention of Florence or even an interview with the investigating officer, which often formed the concluding segments of cases on the programme. It seems though there were good reasons for these omissions, and at the time the show went out live, police had already uncovered information on Nimmo's wife Florence, which would take the investigation in a new direction, one that took them very close to home. Florence's work colleagues had portrayed a different picture of her than the one she presented. It appeared that the diligent and hard-working boss wasn't quite as it seemed to them. Colleagues claimed that Florence spent only a mere fraction of her working days in the office, instead repeatedly telling colleagues that she was going out to catch those abusing the benefits system. Police though discovered that Florence's excuses to be away from the office were nearly all false. Instead, she would spend up to five hours a day in amusement arcades and playing bingo, racking up enormous levels of debt in the process. She was spending sometimes over £1,000 per week in these establishments, and before long was almost £35,000 in debt. With this new evidence in police hands, a check into Florence's qualifications which landed her her new role quickly showed that the supposed honours degree from Cambridge was bogus. She didn't even have the A-levels that she claimed to have. It transpired that Nimmel, as invariably will happen in such cases, had discovered his wife's debt, and when he confronted her, she staunchly denied the accusation. With no explanation forthcoming, Nimmel believed that she must have been having an affair. The unexplained debt, the secrecy of her location, both factors which would lead Nimmel naturally in that direction. So convinced was he of Florence's infidelity, he even hired a private investigator to track her movements in the hope of understanding exactly what she was up to. What the investigator revealed to Nimmel, he certainly wasn't expecting. In order to finance the spiralling debt through gambling, Florence had turned to sex work for an escort agency. Seemingly untroubled by being caught out, when confronted about this, she once again used the excuse that she was working undercover to catch out benefit cheats. Florence was desperate to keep this information, as well as her crippling financial problems from her employer, knowing that it could lead to her dismissal. So Florence needed money, and she needed silence. When the police spoke to some of Florence's escort clients, 
it became clear that she needed something else too. The act of which would seemingly solve her problems in one murderous swoop. Florence stood to gain £180,000 upon Nimmel's death due to a life insurance policy. Her clients explained that Florence would often ask for help with something, claiming that she was on the receiving end of much ill treatment from her husband, falsely stating that he would repeatedly beat her, hoping that one of the men would feel enough pity for her that they may execute Nimmel. Indeed, it was a witness statement from one of these men which secured a warrant for Florence's arrest. In May 1992, she was arrested and charged with soliciting the murder of Nimmel, as she herself was never suspected of having committed the act herself, although the following month, the additional charge of murder was also added to her charge sheet. Florence, as you can probably guess, pleaded not guilty to the charges, and so just short of a year after the murder of Nimmel, a trial began at the Old Bailey. The prosecution was led by David Calvert Smith QC, a man who would gain a high profile in his area following his successful prosecution of Howard Shipman in 2000. Calvert Smith outlined the motive for the murder, which centred around Florence's relentless desire to keep her secret double life hidden away, believing that she had so much to lose. The trial jury was subjected to some incredible evidence. A two-minute videotape was played to the jury, which showed a scantily clad Florence offering a client a massage, before handing back some money to him when he declined sex. She was heard on the tape to say, I'm new in this business this year to pay off some debts. If there's anything you want me to do, just say so. Another customer told the court of hour-long sex sessions with Florence, but it was the evidence of Alex Cheatham that would engender panic among Florence and her defence team. Cheatham was, at this time, the head of Croydon's Police Consultative Committee, and he admitted to the court that he regularly visited agencies such as the one that Florence had worked in. He explained that during one such visit, Florence asked him to find a contract killer in exchange for £500. In a similar vein, she had correspondence with a man named Simon Wash, who owned his own cleaning firm. Of course he did. Wash explained that he'd met her at a barbecue in the autumn of 1991. She'd mentioned to Wash that Nimmel harassed her constantly, and Wash accepted that he may well have told Florence that he could probably find someone who could protect her. A fortnight later, Wash visited Florence's office and took a man named Gerard Smithers with him. Wash believed that the protection that Smithers could afford Florence would be in return for a cleaning contract. During their meeting, Smithers was agreeing to perhaps escorting Florence from time to time, then according to Wash, Florence suddenly asked, Will you kill my husband? Though he said that the suggestion was not really taken seriously by him. Smithers himself told the court that he had no recollection of Florence asking him to kill Nimmel at the meeting, but admitted that during numerous other meetings, she had asked whether or not he could kill her husband, with Florence even suggesting methods of how this could be achieved. But Smithers was not deemed a credible witness, the judge later describing him as rogue and an opportunist. A man called Drummond, the manager of one of the arcades that Florence would frequent, gave evidence that Florence had told him that she'd been shot at and even gang-raped by friends of her husband. She told him that she might take a knife and stick it in him. 
She even told Drummond that Nimmel had assaulted their daughter and the only solution was to get rid of her husband. The evidence against Florence was now stacking up and much of it seemed pretty damning. Evidence was also displayed that suggested that Nimmel was well aware of his wife's activities and had even planned to expose Florence. He planned an affidavit which highlighted her propensity for gambling and also her subsequent work at the escort agency. He had planned to use this document at an arranged social services meeting which had been planned for the day after his death. Florence was loath to allow this information to seep out. Fully aware of the devastation it could cause in terms of her custody battle and employment. It seemed clear that Florence would not stop until her husband was dead. Her response to these allegations took the court down a familiar road, as again she claimed she was just doing her job, exposing people, abusing the benefit system, and she'd made a deal with the madam of the escort agency to do this from the premises. Whilst much of this evidence portrayed Florence in a less than flattering way, her QC, Mansfield, leading Florence's defence, was at pains to point out that the evidence heard by the court was produced by less than reliable witnesses. He argued that his client was effectively being tried upon background matters rather than proper and sound facts which could be verified and corroborated. But Calvert Smith for the prosecution was very clear in his arguments and asserted this to the jury in his summing up. The circumstances of the killing prove it was an assassination. She is a strong-willed and manipulative person, prepared to say and do anything to achieve her own ends. She enjoyed, he said, the trappings of power, driving a Mercedes and sending daughter Michelle to a fee-paying school. Florence was enjoying living the high life and was certainly not prepared to lose this privilege. He added that Florence had outwardly given every appearance of respectability and responsibility whilst working in her high-powered position. Throughout the trial, Florence continued to deny any involvement in her husband's murder and at one stage suggested it may have been carried out by Tamil guerrillas from Sri Lanka. The jury, however, were unconvinced by her rather threadbare defence and on Tuesday the 7th of December 1993, a jury of eight men and four women convicted her of murder and soliciting the murder of her husband. Upon hearing the verdict, she slumped forward in the dock and yelled no. Florence was sentenced to concurrent terms of life imprisonment and eight years imprisonment, respectively. Quite who Florence did manage to recruit to execute her husband is still a matter of speculation. Nobody's ever been convicted of the killing, but there can be little doubt as to where the origins of Nimmo's murder come from. Florence had hardly been in any way subtle in her actions and discussions with people about what she had in mind for her husband. After the trial, this rather laissez-faire attitude of Florence, which had ultimately contributed to her downfall, was well summed up by police. She might as well, they said, have gone around with a loud hailer asking if anyone was willing to murder her husband. And tragically for Nimmel, there was. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's quite a story, isn't it? It just shows again, I think, what we hear about so often on this podcast, which is the reality of our lives is often so very different to the image we like to portray. And poor Nimmel, murdered just when he collected all the evidence he believed he needed for his divorce. And assuming they're still alive, the person who actually physically killed him is still free, enjoying all the freedoms that they took away from Nimmel on that January day. 
back in 1992. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast today. To discuss this case or any other aspect of UK true crime, please head to the Facebook group where you can join almost 75,000 of us. And to support the show and allow me to keep producing a free weekly podcast, please consider joining me at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. You'll find bonus episodes and loads of other exclusive content there. And finally, as I mentioned last week, my book on Angus and Claire Gone Fishing is now released. You can get it on Amazon in paperback or Kindle. Just search Gone Fishing by Chris Clark and Adam Lloyd or check any of my social sites. So that's all from me for today. A huge thank you to Chris Wood for the research and writing of this week's episode. And please join me again next week. But until then, please do take it easy. And despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now.